Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod, a new conversation about fan engagement. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join for exclusive member services and benefits. This stuff is the teacher. 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 Welcome to episode 34 of the Fan Engagement Pod, a wide-ranging conversation with Brighton and Hove Albion Chief Executive and Vice Chair Paul Barber. Paul is someone liked and respected throughout the industry and we cover plenty of ground, ranging from the way in which leadership and values shape the way the club is run at all levels, involving all staff and how that impacts on engagement with fans, to how important the intention has been in rebuilding Brighton from a club that nearly disappeared to one that is now in the top flight for their fourth season in a row. We also touch on the COVID pandemic and his views on the returns of fans and challenge of engaging them throughout, as well as looking at esports and how it can be used to attract and retain a new generation of fans. Don't forget we've got loads of other episodes, including the new Buzz Chat, where we take a particular look at activation, sponsorships and partnerships between brands and rights holders, with a fan engagement flavour and with a real expert in the field, Baz Schneider. Due to circumstances beyond my control, the episode you're at this week on the 25th of February will now be coming up on the 4th of March. Sorry about that. We'll return to the regular date of the last Thursday of every month for the scheduled March episode. Listen via the usual channels, search Fan Engagement Pod and join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. Paul, um, thanks for uh, thanks for agreeing to come on. Um, now I spoke to you. Now I think uh, I I don't want to keep going about my diploma. This is the second time I've done it, but it's because both you and Mark Catlin at Portsmouth, who I spoke to the other day, were very kind in granting me a, um, interviews when I did my diploma in public relations several years ago. Um, and I can't remember. I think you were an, a, a, an EFL club at the time. It's about three years ago. Maybe maybe four. Yeah, probably um, four. We we've been here since twenty seventeen. So uh, yes, yes, yeah, you just four years. Yeah, so you hadn't you hadn't long since. So, so um, I mean, in general, how how are things at uh, uh, you know this this far into everything? Is it you know is it what you expected? Are you enjoying this yeah, Premier League? Or, yes. Or pandemic. Yeah. Yes, yes. How's how's that? Because that's you know that's a, a a big thing for a club like Brighton that for years and years was kind of seen as a lower division provincial club, really. Yeah, no. The Premier League comes with um with with, with lots of pluses and and one or two minuses. I mean, the, the the pluses are obvious. You're you know you're playing against the best and biggest clubs in the world, the best players in the world, and you're generating income that that you can't possibly generate in the Championship or or lower. Um, against that, of course, you've got a massive amount of increased scrutiny and pressure that comes with that scrutiny, not just for the players and the and the managers, but for the for the staff in the club as a whole. And and what we do and how we do it, um, what we say and how we say it are probably scrutinised more in the Premier League than almost any other sports league in the world, I'd say. Um, but of course, the benefit is is obvious. The financial benefits are there. The profile benefits are there. The exposure for sponsors are, are fantastic, and for the fans, particularly of our club, because we've spent you know all but eight seasons out of 120 years in the lower levels, 
uh, it's a fantastic journey and a great adventure. And, uh, you know, I think on the whole, um, fans, our fans are really enjoying it. They've had to get used to not winning as many games because in the Premier League, it's very difficult to win games, um, particularly if you're a club of our size. But with that comes a huge amount of satisfaction when you do. So, you know, the reward and the satisfaction for beating Liverpool last week at Anfield, Tottenham the week before here at the Amex, Leeds a few weeks before that at Ellen Road. You know, those things have, have been wonderful, um, wonderful achievements for the club. Um, but, you know, we always say at this level of football, the most important game is your next game. You know, you can look back on your results and enjoy them, but there's always another big game around the corner. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, no, that, I mean, there was a word that I'd like to just pick out there, which was scrutiny. Now, um, some some people might find it, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm uh, suggesting this, that some people might find that scrutiny more rather uncomfortable. But for people who aren't necessarily aware, and certainly it was something I learned from when we did talk several years back, um, scrutiny is something you sort of um, uh, preempt, let's say, because one of the things that um, that certainly attracted me to the way that you do things there, in a similar way to say someone like Mark at, uh, at Portsmouth, for example, is you volunteer the information. You don't you don't have a tendency to um, to sit on it and wait for people to ask. No, we um, we've got a very open culture here. Um, you know, the values that of the club are very clearly defined. People don't just talk about them; they they, they live those values and. Part of the, 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 the benefit of a values-driven organisation is that you can be very transparent. And, you know, we don't tend to wait to be asked about what we're doing or how we're doing it. We, we volunteer that information or we make it available if people are interested. And that's everything really from, you know, putting our hands up to be a test event when COVID was, um, you know, at its peak in the first wave to disclosing our financial results and explaining, you know, how we've made the losses we've made. Um, or being open and engaging with our fans, even when we actually can't have them in the stadium. So this Wednesday, for example, we've got another online fans forum. The last one we did attracted over a thousand people at seven o'clock at night um, in the middle of, of winter coming up to Christmas. You know, those sorts of things give the club uh, an opportunity not only to answer questions from fans and therefore hopefully allay any concerns that there might be or, or just simply to inform people of what we're doing and how, but it also gives us the platform to talk about the things we want to talk about. So, you know, this week, no doubt that the conversation will be around the, the, the various issues of, of racist abuse and online and discriminatory behaviour towards players and managers and match officials and, and even club staff. You know, it's an opportunity for us to, to be open about our stance on that and to get across our views. And, and I think that that's a, that's a very positive part of actually being under the scrutiny that you are as a Premier League club because you you can actually take a different stance and rather than it feeling as if you're constantly being questioned or under attack or 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 under the microscope you can actually use it to your advantage to get across you know your club's views okay so the thing that's interests interests me again I'll take pick out a word there or pick out um some a thing there which was about um the whole organization the whole football club um uh, uh you know in the the that everyone has to buy into it if you want to use that hoary old phrase that we're, we're all quite familiar with. Um, lots of clubs, and it's we, I think we forget that this is lots of organisations, because obviously you've worked outside 
football, you've seen this in other organisations, not simply sporting ones. But um, it, often, with often certainly with football clubs, it's easy and all organisations. It's easy for things to become quite siloed, right? And for people to become um, sort of masters of their own area, it can be sometimes a bit impenetrable, or they maybe aren't supported as well, and it's difficult um, for the for the sort of whole organisation to impact on what they do. Also, so I think sometimes with with um, I think with external facing communications roles can often be seen as broadcast and actually the values part kind of gets forgotten because it's about pumping information out or it becomes that I don't think that's <laughs> what you should be solely doing with it and you need to be having a listening uh, um, role always there because it's a great place if nothing else to pick up in, you know uh, intelligence about what's going on so how do you make sure that your you know your organization in all its parts um does have those values is this something that's about you know is it a, is it one part owner because i know tony bloom is someone who's it's in his blood it's in his family has been for years um i think his grandfather something died on on the team bus didn't he i remember the conversation we oh. had um you know is it partly who he chooses and the board chooses to employ are you and then the people you bring in you know is there one part that really makes it you know is it one part that's more important or or is it like all these things a bit of a jigsaw puzzle and you have to be able to put them all together yeah i think it is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle i mean i think first of all you you start with a very clear vision um and our you know our vision um is, is something that we've updated very recently actually to you know originally when i joined the club it was the vision was to become a premier league club um and having been four years in the premier league the vision is now to become a top 10 premier league club and a top four women's super league club you know, does that mean that when we finish ninth, hopefully in one season, we tick that box? No, it doesn't, because to be a top 10 Premier League club means to to do that on a regular and sustained basis. And, you know, the, the great thing about sport is that, you know, there will always be seasons uh, where that form that you crave drops and you might not you might not make it into the top 10. In fact, you might be battling relegation or you may even in the worst circumstances be relegated. So the vision is always aspirational. It's then backed by clear objectives for each department in helping us to achieve that division. And, and we break the vision down so that every single department in the club, whether you're in the maintenance team or you're the first team coach, has a part in achieving that vision. And then it's about the values and behaviours that you expect people to demonstrate when they're going about meeting their objectives and hitting that vision. So, you know, we have, we have values which are fairly fairly sort of simple for people to understand, act with integrity, um, treat people well, exceed expectations, um, uh, make it special. Um, you know, these are things that people can relate to in each of the areas that they operate in. They're, they're not specific to a department. Um, and then I think it's about a combination of different communication tools. So yes, we do use emails to get out to everyone, urgent information or detailed information. But we always back that with smaller team meetings and then usually once a month, what we call our, our chief executives town hall, where I will sit, as it has been for the last year, unfortunately, in front of a screen like this and have three, four hundred staff on the other side with a, a very, very open opportunity to ask whatever they want. There's no preparation. There's no questions in advance. There's no um, uh, briefing from our communication staff to me on what I can expect or our HR staff. It is literally open house. And to some extent, I can steer the agenda by 
my opening remarks or topics that I want to cover. But by and large, it is there for everybody and anyone to ask whatever they want, however they want, in whatever way they want, and, and they do. Um, and then that's further backed up by if there are specific issues that emerge or themes that emerge, um, then we will follow those up afterwards with more detailed communication with either those individuals or those groups or those departments, whichever, whichever way it, it fell. Um, and then all of that is underpinned by financial incentives and our remuneration structure um, by making sure that everyone shares in whatever success we have. So when we got promoted, everyone shared in a promotion bonus. When we stayed in the Premier League, everyone shared in the retention bonus. And we broke down um, according to individual department performance and objectives, what that financial incentive would look like. And then it was underpinned by if you don't live the values in achieving your objectives to meet your financial targets and therefore your bonus, then there will be some deductions. So in other words, it's not, if you're the sales team, it's not meet your sales targets to hit your bonus towards the club achieving its vision at all costs. If along the way you've treated people badly or you haven't operated in a team or you haven't gone out of your way to act with integrity, then some of your bonus will be lost because you're not achieving it in the way that we want you to achieve it. So it is a jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, a big part of that will definitely be the recruitment that you mentioned. You know, we have a, a very clear philosophy when we recruit people, the type of people we want to recruit. And we always almost joke with each other that when any of us are interviewing, usually within the first five minutes, we know whether the person sitting in front of us will meet our values. And it could be by their first answer, it could be by the way they have turned up late, early on time, um, the way they've prepared. Um, you know, we, we can almost tell it's, it's not even something that we can tangibly um, discuss or talk about. It's just an instinct that we have. And those that have been here five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years uh, know those values, you know, to their core. And they can see or um, identify someone sitting in front of them who, who is not like them. And that's not to say that we go for clones, we go for the same sorts of people. We go for lots of different people. In a city like this, we've got a very diverse uh, community. So we have all kinds of different people working in the football club, many of them, uh, or some of them, not even football fans, many of them, not even Brighton fans, but they all bring something a little bit different with the same values. And that is really important to us. And this in terms of, I mean, people will, I'm sure, well, I mean, there might be certain people who aren't that familiar with the, the years of struggle that Brighton had. In terms of, um, in terms of the overall um, relationship with fans and fan engagement after which, you know, which after all is the subject of the podcast. Um, how much is, um, in, in terms of the way you because you how long have you actually been at Brighton now let me remind eight me eight and a half years now half yeah. years. Hmm. so how much of this has been a sort of to some extent a natural response to the years of you know I mean there are a few groups of fans who had it as bad as Brighton I'll, I'll volunteer my own club uh, at Wimbledon I think we probably <laughs> I think we could speak in sympathy with Brighton all the shot um Charlton fans, I think we were all of a particular era where we where we suffered a lot. Um, but how much of it for you is because because I because just to clarify, I think there are a lot of clubs who went through struggle, and without naming them all, and I have already named one of them, um, they didn't all turn out like Brighton did, right? Mm. And I mean things could still change. Let's be honest. It's just but but you know 
there's been a really intention there's been a real path that's been a furrow that's been followed um by the club and how much of it has been a well look of course after all the years of struggle and the terrible things that Brighton fans had to go traveling to Gillingham and all that sort of stuff and losing the Goldstone how much of it is is just a natural response to well look you can't carry on being that awful to your fans right and then obviously Tony Bloom being being uh, being you know Dick Knight and then Tony Bloom well you've got people who care about the place and they want to do the right thing and and a lot of the staff there are, are, are people who've been there for a long time and have experience of, of they've seen what it's like and then how much of it have you actually had to engineer in terms of rebuilding that trust? Because once that trust goes, I, I found I found in a lot of clubs that I worked in, a lot of environments I worked in, fans I worked with, that reco- recovering that trust is a long process, isn't it? And it and it and it's also yeah. a very deep, it's a deep and a broad process. So tell me, what is it? Has it been just well? How else could you be? And B, how much have you had to really work hard at this? Because trust is a lot, you know. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, first of all, it does come from the owner. I think the owner and their attitude to the club is really important. So in our case, we're very fortunate that Tony Bloom is a lifelong fan. The family have long-standing connections with with the ownership of the club, albeit they have never owned it prior to Tony uh, being chairman, uh, but they have sat on the board. we're certainly very aware of, of our history and, and, and what the fans went through uh, before Tony took over because he was one um, and still is one, obviously. But we also did engineer the way we wanted the club to be. And certainly when I first met Tony, which would, would have been now probably nearly nine and a half years ago, because it was probably nearly a year before I joined that I first met him. And he talked about the vision for the club, uh, the resources he was prepared to put behind achieving that vision and that primarily initially was getting to the Premier League, as I said earlier, and then the sort of club that he wanted it to be. And what attracted me at that time to to working with Tony was that it very much chimed with the way I wanted a football club to be, you know, whether it was my football club or a football club that I was running. And some of that goes back probably to my childhood and and listening to my dad and, and some of his friends and their almost constant frustration with an inability to get anything out of their football club, information return phone calls, write in for, I don't know, a request for a charity or a signed shirt or anything. And just a simple courtesy of a response. And they used to lament it all the time. And, you know, then I started thinking about, you know, as a fan, you know, the treatment that I got, whether it was at, you know, in in my case, White Hart Lane um, and and the the facilities that were there uh, back in the 70s, even worse going to other clubs around the country, the way we were treated on buses and trains, the way we were treated when we got to visiting grounds, and particularly the way we were treated as visiting fans in somebody else's stadium. And, and, and I thought, you know what, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> it does, you know, we don't have to be so hostile to each other. and we, don't, we certainly don't have to be hostile to our own fans. And then I suppose I had three years in North America uh, and and seeing how North American sports franchises, and I know we hate that word in England, but that's the way it is in the US and, and North America as a whole, and just seeing how much effort they put into fan engagement and to dialogue with fans and to making the overall experience as good as it can be. And I thought, you know what, there's some of that that we could really do well with back in the UK. And, and if I do go back to the UK and work in English football again, 
I'd like to do some of those things um, that they do in our way, with our style, um, but actually take some of that thinking back with me. Um, and I did. And, and it's, been a, it's been an interesting way to blend my own personal experience growing up watching football with my professional experiences, the culture that Tony wanted to establish in this club, this club's history, and then really importantly, um, learning that trust doesn't come easily. And even here we are, eight and a half, nine and a half years into the journey of this club at this stadium. And there's still, I'd say, a small percentage of fans that are yet to be convinced that, or if they're not convinced, they need reminding that the people that are running the club now can be trusted, are not out to treat them badly, are not looking to flip the club a, a profit, are not looking to sell the assets from under their feet and leave them homeless again. And, you know, trust takes a huge amount of time to build, but a moment of time to destroy. And, you know, the constant reinforcement when that trust has been destroyed previously is necessary to get people back, even to a point of neutrality. You know, I don't think any football club owner or chief executive expects to be as popular as the centre forward that gets 30 goals a season. But at the very least, they hope for a degree of trust with the, with the supporters of the club that, 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 that they follow. So... You know, from my point of view, I think it's a combination of all those things, Kevin, that, you know, you've got to have the clear vision, you've got a great owner, you've got to understand what that owner's looking for in terms of the culture that he wants, and then you've got to actually employ a series of strategies and, and policies that is consistent with that, and accept that along the way, there's going to be rocky moments. You know, if, if you lose football matches, football fans will turn on the board far quicker than the manager or the players. And if the ball then doesn't change things, you know, that can intensify and become almost campaign type behavior to, 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 make, to, to bring about change. But at the same time, if you're prepared to front up in the good times, but more importantly, in the bad times, and you can build that level of trust and you're prepared to answer questions openly and honestly, you've got half a chance then. You know, you're never going to be popular yeah. because that's not what it's about. Certainly not for me and, and not for Tony. Tony, Tony's always going to be the most popular guy at this club because it's his money that's, that's put us in this wonderful stadium and built this fantastic training ground and transformed the club to, to, to be a Premier League club. It's my job almost to kind of be the bad guy sometimes and, and implement the policies that no one likes because yeah. my brief is to run the club sustainably and to, to ensure that, you know, if something terrible happened to Tony, God forbid, the club would be in a reasonable position to be sold or to be run without him or to be sustainable without him. Um, and that's not always popular because sometimes it's about making those decisions that fans don't like, you know, whether it's putting prices up or saying, no, you can't smoke in the stadium or actually we do have a health and safety issue with flasks. So you can't bring a flask. You know, unfortunately, times have changed and, you know, we have to move with those times. And, and it's my job to make those decisions and implement those policies. So, you know, popularity contests are not anything I'm going to win anytime soon, but hopefully people will see that they've got a trustworthy leader for the club and a trustworthy owner. And it's remarkable, really, in my view, that it's a remarkable thing that you run the club in the way you do, because I look at it, I look at all the clubs that I know that, that run them run themselves in a similar way to yourself, where I would say that, you know, listening is a big part of it and also fronting up, because I also think that it's not all wine and roses there are times when you need to be clear and honest with people and say we have to do this and as long as you as long as you explain it at the very least but you know you're also prepared to shape and move things with with 
the you know with in collaboration with people as well that you don't just go and consult them because you've made a decision so there's a, a sense that you move you move in depending on what the issue is and how you're able to involve people but the fact that so for me the fact that lots of this stuff is done in in places like yours i mean you know i always point to someone like norwich as well or lincoln city doncaster row is particularly good at this sort of stuff and there are some of the clubs um some of the clubs further down like exeter city are excellent this kind of thing but the thing that, that i just wanted to sort of make a point about and just query is certainly um in in the in the football league in the EFL where resources are, are, are much few far fewer obviously and you've been you've been in there as well. What one thing I've 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 picked up over a number of years is that and I maybe I'm being unfair to clubs but you tell me is the unwillingness sometimes of clubs to permit the the EFL in particular say but I think it also applies to Premier League at times to provide support um, and you know in for example navigate you talked about you know, sometimes things turn to protest. You know, opposition is a big, is a quite easy move for, for fan organisations. Um, and and I, I get frustrated when they move to the press release or the tweet as it is these days, slamming the football club rather than pick up the phone and have a chat about mm. it. It's not a problem, you're not selling out. But is there a place where actually we need to, yeah, we need to acknowledge that football clubs are all independent. And I, and I know that, I understand it innately. But... Is there a role for, for more support centrally on some of these issues around, you know, fan engagement, some of the difficulties that, that you have to face and getting some of the, the you know, the, the knowledge and the experience of people like you, Liam Scully at, at Lincoln City, who I particularly like, and people like Ben Kensel at Norwich. Is there a role for, for that, that maybe a little bit more consolidated support at the centre might be actually quite useful for clubs to learn? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose we, we, we kind of do it a, a different way in the sense that, we're always happy to share what we do here with with other clubs so that they can get up the learning curve faster particularly if they haven't got the resources that we've now got so the test event that we did here in august two and a half thousand people you know we wrote an operational plan we got government to approve it we had government here observing how we delivered that plan and then afterwards we wrote a debrief report which ran to over 100 pages on what worked what didn't work what we would do differently what we would advise the government to do differently and as part of the commitment we made, we said that we would make that report, warts and all, available to every sporting institution in the country that was interested in seeing it. So whether it's cricket, rugby, football, tennis, whoever held uh, mass um, spe spectator events, we would be happy to share it. Um, the, the, the problem is, the challenge is for the football authorities generally, is that because every club is different and every stadium is different and every philosophy of every club is different and their terms and conditions are different and you know the way they go about implementing their match day uh, responsibilities are different it's sometimes hard to homogenize policies and, and procedures across 92 professional clubs doesn't mean it's impossible and i do think sometimes you know we could work better together or the leagues themselves could help facilitate better and more consistent discussions particularly with fan groups so for example you know the current issue of, of online abuse you know we've all got our own tariff of sanctions for for people that that commit those sort of um those sort of breaches of terms and conditions or in some cases criminal offenses but but why not have a consistent sanction you know one club may see a, a certain piece of abuse as being not that not that big a deal but another club may see it as a very big deal 
Um, and the problem with that is, is that, you know, you go to one ground and a fan behaves in a certain way and they get a sanction from that club that is one game banned, but another club, it might be five or 10. Um, and, you know, that, that is confusing, that mixed messages. Likewise, you know, during the pandemic, we all agreed that once we did open the stadiums for fans, we must have a consistent policy on masks. We couldn't have some clubs that said fans have got to wear masks and other clubs that said that they don't have to. So those sorts of areas, I think there could be more consistency. I think where the league did act very well, Kevin, and, and this I think you and I talked about a few years ago, is when, you know, again, as much as fans hate to be called customers, when the Football League and the Premier League and the FA insisted on every club forming a customer relations department, or in our case, a supportive services department, that was a massively important move to... Um, shifting from that kind of behaviour that I talked about that I experienced with my dad in the 70s and 80s where football clubs were just not engaged with you. You know, you were just a fan. Get on with it. We don't, we don't want to hear from you. You know, if you don't like the pricing, or you don't like the hot dog, you don't like where you stand or where you pee, sorry, tough, that's the way it is. Now, you know, we've got teams of people, all of us at every level that engage and, you know, respond within a certain period of time to, to emails and letters and phone calls. And I think that's a really good thing. And, you know, when, sometimes when I hear fans sort of resenting, um, you know, the, the notion that, that we treat them as customers, I actually sh shake my head in sort of, sort of disbelief. You know, I, I, as a supporter, I want to be treated as a customer and recognised as a supporter. I, I don't want to be treated badly just because I'm yeah. a supporter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this notion that there's some kind of um, insult to calling a football supporter a customer of a club is, is, is in my opinion, bonkers. Well, you know, we're both, you know, we're all of us are both. And it's yeah. important that clubs recognise us for being fans and that we can't easily take our custom, if you like, elsewhere. But when it comes to engaging with the club and transacting with the club and buying from the club, I want them to see me as a customer. I want to be treated properly. And if I'm not happy, I want them to respond to my unhappiness. Yeah. I know they can't fix every result on the pitch, but if my seat's broken uh, and I've paid a lot of money for it in the season ticket, I want it fixed. Yeah. I don't no, that, look, Paul, I think that that point is really important. It's something that Baz Schneider, the, this guy, a fan engagement consultant called Baz Schneider, Dutch guy, um, quite well known by a lot of people. He, we, we talk about, um, you know, I talk a lot about stakeholders, um, um, you know, part-time customer, full-time stakeholder, as it were. Um, he talks about the super customer idea, you know, and I mean, they're very similar things. And actually my response to, you see that when I get this sometimes from people who, are, who don't work in, 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 in football or maybe a, a, have a, a very different view from me is and then they say, well, you see, the problem is, is we're all treated like customers. I say, well, I'd actually like to be treated like a customer at some of the places I've been to. So I think you're entirely right, Paul. I don't see what the problem is, of you know, like you do when you go to German football and everyone goes on about how great the experience is. Well, it's because they treat you like your money matters when you when you pay your money over they want to treat you properly so um and it's important that you then as you say you balance the the, the fact that you're a supporter as well and you can't take your custom elsewhere the, I think um, the problem is if if you take the the rejection of that idea to its logical mm. conclusion it actually takes you back to the 1970s where football clubs will just simply stop responding to you and ignore you I think there's a desire. There's a desire for, for absolutely for me amongst some of the people that I uh, I see and hear um, that what they're after is something that feels a little bit more. And it's a terrible word that I really hate using, and I, I say this every time I use it, but I still use it. And that's more authentic. And what they mean is, yeah, look, that that there were some things about being outstanding on the terraces that were great, 
except no one managed the, the capacity on those terraces. And so I remember nearly being crushed there several times um, um, uh, 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 fixtures at Plough Lane in the 1980s uh, yeah. when it was massively, you know, the West Bank was massively overfilled. There was absolutely no doubt we had 20,000 probably people in the ground and it was only supposed to take 15,658. And who in the hell, the hell was counting that? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a part, I understand it because I experienced some of the good sides of that, but I didn't like fences being in the way. I didn't like the fact that we were herded around like cattle. Um, yeah. And we were literally put in pens, you know, as you know. Uh, yeah. And going to White Hart Lane was a great experience in one sense. And I stood on the shelf in the in the 1988 FA Cup semi-final against Luton. But frankly, the shelf probably needed work on it then. So, <laughs> so you know. Hi, I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about Match Day Digital, the world's first football first digital magazine platform bringing together premium paid content from clubs match day programs popular football magazines newspapers and high quality fan produced fanzines it's quite the list uh, match day digital brings football content and supporters together in a single app which allows clubs and other publishers to deliver their content to a much wider audience than they would through their own print or digital sites and apps all especially relevant obviously during this covid era you can download the app on Google Play and Apple Store. Go to matchdaydigital.co.uk for more. And if you're a club, drop the fellas over there a line. They're really friendly and I'm sure they'd love a chat with you about your needs. Go back to all of the issues that we've had over the years and there will usually be a reason for those things now being in place that we learn from. And if we hadn't learned from, we'd be criticised for not looking back and learning from some of the, the worst aspects. Even down to, as I said, I joke about it because it's a big thing here with some fans. You know, we banned flasks. Why? Because it's been found across many, many different parts of the world that flasks can conceal a multitude of things from, you know, bomb making equipment in the extreme level. We've never had it in England, thank God, but they have had it in other places. Acid, hard alcohol, drugs. A whole range of things just a simple flask but the problem is you know well what, what about the 83 year old who's you know frail and, and elderly and, and and just wants his hot drink again we understand that but we can't make one rule for one and one for others and equally if we're going to check one flask then we've got to check them all and if we check them all and we slow up entry to the stadium one of the main issues with football fans queuing up around stadiums not this one because we're in a, a non-urban area but in urban areas is creating large queues of people that can then be used by terrorists to, to run. You know, what football clubs want to be able to do is move their crowds through the turnstiles as quickly and as efficiently as possible, as safely as possible, making sure that once they're all inside, they've done everything reasonable to keep the people that are inside safe. What you don't want to do is slow entry to the stadium, create long lines of people around built up urban areas and suffer some of the things that German markets have faced where you know, trucks and lorries come ploughing through hundreds of people, you know, because that's a, that's a risk that we can avoid. So we are, we're always having to balance lots of different risks and issues with what supporters would like to do, the authenticity of the way it was. And yeah, we'd all love to, those of us that want to smoke, have a smoke, have a beer, stand up, you know, not be frisked, bring bags in, bring our flask in with our whiskey, tot, tot, you know, hot toddy in there. We'd all love to do that. But unfortunately, history has shown us, and sadly, the world that we're in has shown us, that we've got to mitigate a lot of those risks to protect people. And it's such a difficult one because, you know, I, I kind of still in my head 
have a sort of romantic um, notion of what it was like to go to football in the 70s and 80s with my dad. But actually, when I really break it down, was it that great? Bits of it, not much of it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the best experience I've ever had for my money. Um, so, you know, I think we've come a long way and I think, you know, not everything's perfect. I think we always learn and we should always learn and we should always listen to, to the feedback from our fans. And the thing that I, I, I kind of always say to our fans is, look, we, we're, we're, we're fans too. You know, we, we don't sort of sit running football clubs in isolation from being fans. We are fans. You know, I still go to games with my son and my daughters that are nothing to do with Brighton because I'm still a fan and I, and I experience other clubs and what, and what they do and how they do it. Um, and not just here, in other countries as well. So I think that's the case for most clubs up and down the country that, you know, the guys running them and the teams of people running them are fans themselves who experience what fans experience. So they use that learning as well. Certainly, you know, my head of ticketing is a season ticket holder at another club. And so she's constantly thinking about what she sends out in how she would respond to receiving it as a fan, as a season ticket holder. So I think those things are important as well. And, and, you know, I always try and blend the staff here, as I said earlier, between those that love Brighton, those that love football, those that don't love football at all, those that have got experience from other entertainment industries, whether it's music or theatre or cricket or rugby, because they also bring something into the football mix that I think is really valuable. Just a different bit of thinking or sometimes it's just questioning. They say, well, I know you might have done that for 40, 50, 60 years in football, but you don't have to do it like that. You could consider the way we do it in rugby or cricket or theater or music or whatever it happens to be. So we try and we try and mix up. And, and of course, the other thing is not having pure football fans in the football club may sound a little bit illogical, but what it does is it helps sometimes take the emotion out of decision-making. You know, no, I agree with you. I think that's really important. You've got to have people who have a, bring a different perspective from a different industry because we don't, we often, you know, and, and the, the speed of everything, um, week to week to week to week, game to game to game to game. Um, and it's so enveloping as a game and, and as an industry, it's good to have people who can go, well, hang on a minute. Don't, why do you have to think that way? All yeah. Time? Well, I always say to our management team, you know, the two most in question, important words you can use in our meetings are why and how. You know, why are you planning to do that? Or why do we do it like that? And if we're going to change it, how? How are we going to change it? And how are we going to implement it? Because in a football club, you know, the why and the how are two really important words because there's some great ideas. We, I have some of the best ideas ever. And then my operations staff to me say, Paul, they're great, but how? How are we going to do that on a match day? How are you going to X, Y, Z? And they're, they're the guys who kind of almost stop you in your tracks, not, not to be awkward or be difficult or be negative, but just simply to say, look, we've got 32,000 people coming in here. You want us to do that? Okay, tell us how. And it's quite a challenge. It's important, especially I think when you're leading something, when you're, when you're at the top, it's, if, you, if, you're there and you're, if you're there and you're not, you're not you're, your thinking isn't challenged, um, um, it's good for all of us. But I think when you're running something, I think people around you to challenge your thinking is even more important because you're just oh, definitely. A, a doubly critical, aren't they? Oh, definitely. And also, you know, there's this, again, this sort of notion that the chief executive or the chairman always has the best ideas or the final say. Well, actually, we don't have the best ideas and very often we don't have the final say, you know, because, <laughs> because actually, um, actually, you know, some of, some of the best ideas come from 
come from staff who are really right on the front line. And actually, sometimes the final say should come from the safety officer or it should come from the finance director or it should come from head of ticketing because they're the guys that have actually got to really deliver whatever it is we're deciding to do. And, you know, that's for me, you know, a lesson I learned in football 20, 25 years ago that, that some of the most important people in the football club are the, are the people the fans never, ever know. Um, you know, they actually, you know, they are actually the real nuts and bolts of the business who, who make the most important decisions. And yeah, okay, it's my job to front up those decisions. But, you know, it always amuses me sometimes when I get blamed for, you know, banning flasks. It's not my job to ban flasks. I have to take advice from our security staff who say, Paul, these are the risks and these are the benefits. And actually, at the moment, sadly, the risk of lists, uh, threats is there and the risk of benefits is there. Okay, easy, done. And then I have to defend it. But but that's the same for every club up and down the country, whether they're banning bags as Wembley did a, a few seasons ago, or whether they're stopping vehicles from parking anywhere near the stadium as, 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 as some clubs have, have done over recent years. You know, all those sorts of things are, are just, you know, a combination of expertise and, and skill from around the club. Um, but one person ultimately has to answer to it. I want to just touch on a couple more things before I let you go. Um, no. One is, um, one is uh, COVID, but I want to do that at the end. Uh, and then the other one is esports. Now, um, people will be bored sick, sick of me going on about it by the time I get to this one. But I, it's a sort of a little bit of the scales falling from the eyes for me. Is I mean, I you know, esports and gaming is not something I know a great deal about, and I know how much, um, uh, you know, certainly the top flight clubs, probably your own. Um, I know Wolves did something the other week with Fortnite. You know, looking at this as an area of you know exp expanding profile, you know, revenue generation undoubtedly, and that kind of thing. And obviously, you're you're able to access. The kind of marketing commercial activities that clubs further down just aren't able to it's just not something that they're going to be doing because of the, their profile isn't big enough um outside of those sort of marketing agreements and that kind of stuff the thing that really interested me wasn't um your ability to have tie-ups in a commercial sense with gaming and esports as phenomena but actually the you using gaming and esports as a way of communicating with a whole different audience because I keep seeing people um, and I was a skeptic but I keep seeing people who I think should know better who are sort of essentially rejecting notions of, of, of using these channels um, uh, in, in some kind of way a constructive way uh, you know they're, they're rejecting it almost as a sort of uh, you know almost as that you know harking back again and saying well somehow you're you're, uh, you're it's not it's inauthentic this isn't you know and but hang on and you're on you're on twitter um telling me your view on how esports isn't you know is going to deauthenticize or whatever you want to call it football do you see you know is this something you've looked at and uh, is are you sort of looking at esports as a way of getting and gaming particularly i think of getting to you know groups of probably mostly younger people who are, who are going to be more difficult to attract to to get that stickiness that you need to, to, to you know, that loyalty that you need. Are you looking at that as a potential route in the same yeah. way as social became that and the way that telly became it at one point or another? Sure, I think it, you know, first of all, if someone had told me even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, that 30, 40, 50,000 people would gather in a stadium in Asia to watch a couple of kids playing football on a computer, which was then shown on a big screen, and it would invoke the kind of atmosphere that, that I witnessed 
when I saw it, I, I, I don't know what I'd have done actually. I'd have said they were crazy and, and probably gone to sit in a dark room with a cold towel over my head. But the reality is it's here, it's happening. Um, and you know, for, for us, we, we see it slightly, uh, I suppose in three ways and slightly differently. First of all, there is a, a revenue opportunity from hosting esports activities. So whether it's football related or sport related or you know, all the other kinds of competition, um, competitions that are now played on esports, this venue only gets used 20, 25 times a year for football. So if I can find something to fill the other 300 odd days, that's a big tip. Secondly, there's the brand benefit of, of being represented by an esport player in competitions around the world. And, you know, that's clearly a football related thing, but it doesn't have to be. You know, you could extend your brand to compete under the Brighton Hove Albion banner in a range of other esport activities. And then thirdly, there's the, 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 the necessity, in my opinion, of being represented in, in football related esport competitions because we are a Premier League football club and we should be represented. So there's those three levels. And then on top of all of that, and perhaps intertwining all of those three things, there are the, the opportunities that those uh, activities um, give you to, to get to young people and to get to people who may not have ever been to the stadium or may not necessarily watch Premier League football in the way that you and I do and others do. Um, but they nevertheless like football in a different way and, and their football has, has kind of their knowledge of football has kind of grown up through through a computer. And, you know, I, when I go out and talk to kids at schools, I'm amazed at the detailed knowledge they have on players, not just from our club and the Premier League, but from around the world. And that hasn't come from watching live football on TV. That's come from from playing FIFA. And, you know, they'll say to me, have you thought about buying X player? And I say, well, why do you suggest him? And they'll tell me chapter and verse, you know, where he was born, how old he is, what clubs he's played for, you know, whether he's right or left footed, what, what attributes that he had. All of it's come from FIFA or championship manager. But actually, a lot of that data is the same data that we're using for recruitment purposes. You know, it, it's been fed to those uh, companies, EA Sports and the like you know, through the same sorts of channels that, that we will gather our data through. So, you know, to ignore this sector, if you like, is, is to be, I think, quite naive. And if it isn't authentic for us, it's authentic for this generation, for sure. And therefore, in another generation to come, it will be authentic in a different way. Um, and I think we've, we've all got to open our eyes to it. I must admit, I'm not a, a gamer or FIFA player. And, and you know, I'm kind of amazed at how much time the kids spend on it. And it worries me slightly because I'd rather they were kicking a ball in, in, in the garden or whatever. But it's here and it's here to stay. And therefore, we've got to find a way of, of, of actually exploiting it for all of our benefits mm. and also managing it as best we can for the kids' benefit as well. I mean, I, I sat next, I, I spoke at a conference in New York last year and I sat next to a kid on the table who... Uh, spoke actually after me on esports and he's earning huge six figures a year being an esports player around the world on behalf of different brands and he's sponsored by different brands where's the logo on their t-shirts and he was telling me that he, he'd actually play FIFA in front of 30 40 50,000 people on a regular basis and you know he kind of just thought it was the most natural thing in the world he was 17 um, and he was earning, you know, a lot more money than, than the average salary in the US and the UK put together. So, 
you know, it was just fascinating talking to him and, and it's his career. It, this was something that he has chosen at this point in his life as a career. And probably, as he said, if he, if he could maintain his current income levels for the next 10 years, he would then probably at the age of around 30 be able to decide what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. You know, it's that level of, of income for the top players. So, um, yeah, ignore it at our peril, I think. No, well, that's a good, I think it's a good lesson. Final thing, um, it's, I'm glad we've generally swerved um, uh, the big bad COVID, but we have to talk about it. And one of the things that I mentioned before we, before I clicked the cord was, um, I was, when I was chatting, I've been chatting quite a few people and it's kind of come up just through the conversations that I've had, you know, as, as uh, 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 and, um, um, and then the other day when I talked to Mark at Port Mark Captain at Portsmouth, I, I purposely discussed this with him. And what I'm interested to know is because a lot of people are saying, you know, in, in the industry, the kind of chatter is, look, what's going to be going? And it's not so much when are we going to return? It's what are we going to be returning to? And really specifically, have people's habits been broken? And what are clubs doing? You know, because you talked about the engagement that you've been undertaking all the time. Um, you know, some people will say a lot of clubs have kind of dropped it too quickly when football returned and almost seen that as the, as the total priority. Um, I'm assuming, number one, you've looked at this and gone, well, one of the things we have to do is remain engaged. And I do mean kind of conversationally and institutionally engaged rather than pumping content out. Actually, you know, this relationship needs to be, people need to understand what's going on. They need to have human contact as much as possible with the football club. What um, what are you, uh, you know, I'm not asking for anything detailed, but what are you sort of beginning to see or beginning to expect in terms of drop off? Do you think there's going to be at your club or in general a, a, a bit of a spike when people do come back, as in spiking um, uh, uh, crowds, not not in the virus? Um, you know, is it something that you think people are being a bit complacent about? You know, because there are a lot of conditions attached to all of this. It's, you know, it is about people's psychology. Do they feel safe hugging a stranger again? Because that's a massive part of the game that we all yeah. enjoy, especially with yeah. you know, last minute winners. So can you just give us a, a quick sketch of, of, of things for you on this? Yeah, I think there's the, th the three things that concern me. I mean, first of all, clearly there's, there's the health issue um, and whether for certain uh, age groups, they're going to feel safe enough to come back to large crowds um, that, that that's clearly uh, an issue there's also going to be within uh, outside of those age groups there's also going to be more vulnerable people that you know have got underlying health conditions that may for a while not feel safe vaccine or no no vaccine I think there's financial issues you know for some people you know they may have lost their jobs or you know their income may have been reduced and therefore football becomes more of a luxury than, than ever before and then there's that overriding concern of habit and, 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 you know, one of the things that we were all very, very worried about right at the start, and I, and I remain worried about it, is that people have got out of the habit of going to football. Um, and even if they haven't got out of going, uh, get out of the habit of going to football because they're still desperate to come back, then will their habit be fulfilled in the same way once they can come back? So, for example, will pubs open at the same time? Will people still feel comfortable going to a crowded pub before a game or you know, in the concourse bars, you know, are they going to be that that comfortable being huddled up to hundreds of thousands of other people in and around the concourse bars? So habit is definitely a concern. 
against all of that, I, I'm comforted by the messages I get. And when we do do the fans forums, which are really important, I think, and we've done them throughout the pandemic to, to keep talking to people face to face, against all of those concerns, there is a huge pent up demand to come back. And people are desperate to come back to watch football in the stadium. You know, they've, they've been enjoying football on TV every night of the week. Maybe some members of their family who are not so football minded haven't, but they have on the whole enjoyed it. And I think they've appreciated it. And, you know, apart from a little blip on pay-per-view, you know, I think most people have got to see the games they wanted to see. Um, but they really want to be back with their friends and family in the stadium. They want to be able to sort of clap and cheer and, you know, do all the things that they've, they've done previously and, and they've loved. So there will be, I suspect, some kind of nervousness in those first few weeks and months when we, we do bring people back. And there may well be, for the reasons I said, some kind of drop off in season ticket numbers or, 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 or attendances initially. I'd like to think that as confidence rises in terms of health issues, as people's financial position gets restored, and that may take time, obviously, and people then get back into their old habits because all those things are, are, are dropping into place in the way at the moment they seem almost like they're never going to then I'd like to think that football, because it's a live event and because it's one of those things, actually, you don't realise how much you love it until it's not there. I, I hope that people would then return in, in the way that they did before. Um, but I don't think we can be complacent, Kevin. I don't think we can just assume that we flick a switch and everybody says, OK, that's great. We all go back to normal. I think we've got to work at it. And I think we may have to be patient. I think there may be some fans that are going to need more encouragement and more confidence building than, than others. And certainly for the test event, you know, that we did here, we then had two games where we had 2000 fans after the test event. We had no shortage of take up for those tickets, but then it was only 8% of our capacity. I'd have been worried if we had had, you know, a, 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 a low take up or a slow take up. Um, so I, I do think coming back is going gonna, is gonna to take some time. It's going to be different. We've got to be patient. We've got to expect that that we're going to have to help some people over the line a little bit and we're going to have to be understanding of, of, of some people's own mindset of, of coming back to football overnight. I think it may take some people longer. Some people may never come back because they, they don't ever feel quite as safe as they did before. And I think we've got to be understanding of those people and their families as well.